0: It was like being in primary school, you know? Stacks on, it was like through me and Molama, and I just on the ground and I was the first one down, last one up kind of thing. It's just like something out of a dream, like it just was unbelievable that could happen.
1: Jens and I both got to watch the beginning of this writer's career and he has always had a special place in our hearts. One of the best climbing domestiques in the game, but also with his fair share of World Tour victories like Paris-Nice, Romandie, the Tour Down Under, Volta Catalunya, as well as a very much deserved podium spot at the Tour de France in 2020. I hope you enjoy our time going down memory lane with our boy, Richie Port today on Bobby and Jens. Well, when you ride your bike long enough, there's often a young rider that you bond with right away and try to make sure that he doesn't make the same mistakes that you made during your career. Our guest today is one of those riders, Richie Port. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Bobby and Jens.
0: Thanks for having me, guys.
1: Man, it it is uh, like going back in a time capsule right here. I don't think I'll ever forget the first time I met you down in uh, Fort Ventura in the Canary Islands, yeah, it was kind of like a resort called Playitas. You came in, you were so timid, you were so polite. I just remember thinking to myself, "Man, this poor little kid better HTFU pretty damn quick, uh, or else he's just gonna get eaten alive." So, yeah, how the heck did a kid from Tasmania, ten thousand miles away from Europe? wind up at our Saxo Bank training camp in, what was that, December of 2009?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was quite quite the journey. I mean, it feels like forever ago, but basically I did, you know, the whole race in Italy as an amateur thing, and you know, I almost slipped through the cracks. I didn't come through the uh, Australian Institute of Sport. I sort of did it off my own bat a little bit, and, uh, you know, it looked like the pro thing wasn't going to happen for me, and then, you know, just wound up in Saxo Bank which at the time was the best team you know in the world you know it's it's funny to look at it now like you know I went and met Bjorn uh, on his his vacation it went from oh maybe I can take you to yeah I'll, I'll take you I'll take a chance and next thing you know I was you know I was in the Madrid airport sat across from from Jens Voigt who you know like everyone knew Jens Voigt and it was just Amazing, you know, to, to turn up with the best team in the world and, uh, you know, meet guys like, you know, Yenzi, Bobby, you know, Fabian, Stewie. It was, it was an incredible team. I mean, even now, it's great memories and uh, I enjoyed my time there, to be honest.
2: Great memories. It's a good word. Um, we all remember because we talked about it before, Bobby and me, when we had our little team building camp or survival camp, so called, and we had some fun in the pool And the challenge was to dive or swim underwater as long as you can. And I believe uh, it was an Olympic-sized pool, and I managed almost an entire length. I think my hands didn't really touch the wall. So let's call it 49 meters I managed. And then Richie took over. Can you please tell our listeners how far you went and how the heck did you do that?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was my background, to be honest. So I turned up to that camp overweight. Bianna told me that, you know, <laughs> you're too fat to be a biker. <laughs> he said that a few times. But I think I was lucky that we had a challenge there, which that's what I did as a kid, you know, I swam and, and grew up around a swimming pool. So it wasn't really that big of a deal. That's what we used to do every now and then after swimming is get in and, and swim underwater. I think I managed like 72 meters, something like this. It was kind of a cool moment because... After that, I was also like you, Yenzi. I was, you know, quite lightheaded. and the guys that pulled me out of the the pool were were Bobby and Fabian. So that was kind of, you know, like my initiation almost, so the the Frank Schleck Andy Schleck uh, vodka initiation. But you know, the actual swimming pool one was where people were like, well, you know, this kid's kind of got something. Like Bobby came up to me afterwards. He said, "Mate, that was pretty incredible." So that was kind of the moment that I almost felt accepted i suppose into the team and into cycling
1: you're absolutely right i mean as a neopro coming into a team of that caliber you have to make yourself known and you definitely made a a good first impression okay so you're a kid growing up down in tasmania you kind of already alluded to the fact that you made a couple trips over to europe but i always wonder like that's a big step and and i saw when you started racing and you're gonna have to help me with the name of the team i'd want to say the Pirate's team? Uh Prades, yeah. How would you yeah, say Yeah, Prades. Prades, Prades. Yeah. So you stayed kind of regional in 2007. You went to Toro Wellmington. not any you know, major result. Uh, the next year in 2008, you rode the national championships and then went down to tour down under. I think it was again at Toro Wellington where you won your first race and then went on over to Italy. And it looked like there it was, you know, kind of paint by numbers, learn. And then at the end of the year, you came back for the Herald Sun Tour. So like looking at that, I'd say, man, there's a lot of chances for you to just bag it and say, you know, this sport isn't for me. But when you did go on your first European trip over to Italy and, you know, maybe things didn't go as good as they did the next year. What are some of your memories of that first international trip?
0: Yeah, so 2007 was the the first year that I went to Italy and you know I'd raced in in Australia with a team called Pradies which you know that that team's sort of morphed into uh it was Avanti and then it was Bridge and, and to be fair they you know that's you know guys like Jack haig Ben O'Connor, you know they've They've sent so many guys professional uh, and it's just two guys down in Tassie who just love cycling. They're not overly rich or, or whatever, but they've just done an incredible job for cycling in Australia. You know, up there with Jerry Ryan or, or Michael Drapak. So I was lucky to, you know, A, turn up at a local race as a triathlete and uh, a guy called Andrew Christy Johnson, he was the, the Pradies guy at the time, saw me and thought, My, you know, this kid's got a, a bit of of go you know i'm going to give him a chance and he gave me a bike and you know tickets to races around australia but um eventually i was lucky enough that i had a friend uh racing in italy whose father was michael wilson who uh, i don't know if, if many people know who he is but he was sort of the first australian to win stages in the giro and, and the vuelta and uh, so i was lucky to have that link and i went to italy i did a race and, and i won my first race in 2007 in italy so it was Kind of a weird one that, you know, I think they, they looked at me and I was a little bit chunkier than what I am now, but it was, a, you know, a 4K uphill finish. And I think they thought, oh, this fat kid's just going to, you know, bring himself back. But I went on and won it. And, um, you know, it was, it was you know, a, a little bit of a, a funny one because I won my first race there and then I didn't do anything the rest of the time that I was there. But I was lucky that the next year I went back to a, a team called Master Marco, which, you know, that was sort of Vincenzo Nibali and guys like that came through that team. So, you know, there's always a bit of luck, isn't there, involved. But also, you know, in 2008, I had a, a bad crash and I ended up in, in hospital for for weeks as well, you know, and that could have been the end of it for me. But it wasn't. I ended up winning a race at the end of the year and got an invite to come back for the next year. And, you know, it's just, you know, no one in the pro peloton's had an easy path to being a professional, have they? But... uh For me, it certainly was a, you know, a hard one, you know, it's quite the culture shock coming from, from Tasmania, which is everyone in Australia gives Tassie stick for being, you know, the most backward part of Australia to to Italy, a different language, different culture. It was, yeah, there's, there's so many times that I could have uh, racked it, but just had that feeling that I could do this, you know, I could um, beat guys week in week out and that i knew what i wanted to be and that was professional cyclist
2: and then in 2009 your results were getting better you went back to europe when and how did you ever get in contact with bianna then
0: yeah so to be honest that was a little bit the the aussie connection there i ended up winning like uh the time trial in in the baby giro and and I was lucky that the Herald Sun Tour the year before, there was guys like Brad McGee and, and Stuart O'Grady. So CSC were there, you guys weren't. But, you know, the, the team had a, a team there and I raced against Stewie. Then when my name got thrown in the ring, biana said to, to Stewie, do you know this kid? Um, and Stewie's like, yeah, I do. You should give him a chance. It was just, you know, I just guess that that was it. Just Aussies going to bat for other Aussies. Um, that was kind of how Bianna learned who I was and and gave me that chance.
1: And I remember you moved directly to Monaco. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, how is this poor kid affording to live in Monaco? And then I saw your first apartment and I was just like, oh boy, this is interesting. But later in that year, you went from, came out of nowhere and all of a sudden you were leading the Giro d'Italia. What changed during that race where you went from being, you know, kind of an unknown, obscure rider to all of a sudden having the leader's jersey in in a Grand Tour?
0: I think what changed for me was going to Paris-Nice, and, and I mean, any professional rider that's done Paris-Nice would know that it's a miserable race. It's probably the hardest week of, you know, stage race week in, in the peloton, you know, you come out of Paris, you've got crosswinds and snow and all these things and, and then you can come to, to Nice and it's beautiful, gorgeous weather and that year it was um Jens was there. I mean Jens took the, the jersey if I'm I'm not wrong. But that was kind of where, you know, Bjana turned up and, and the Schleck brothers there was the rumblings of that they were gonna start their, their new team and Bjorn was on one, you know, he was he was there to, to, you know, find out what was happening in Schlecks. But then with me, he said, you know, you're too fat to be a bike rider. You know, let's do something about it. But it wasn't the most PC way of saying it, but it was the kick up the bum that I needed. I mean, I remember going home and it was like, you know, it, was, it wasn't an easy time. Like you say, having to move your life to, to Monaco. It's not exactly the cheapest place to live on a, a neo uh, professional salary, but then I just turned it around like, I mean, I remember Brad McGee really took me under his wing and we did some really good work before um, Romandy, and that was kind of where it started. You know, I went and won the, the time trial uh, in Tour of Romandy. and there was all sorts of, of nasty rumors going around then, you know, that either I'd held onto the car, which definitely didn't or they'd messed up my, my start time, which being in Switzerland, they're not going to mess up your start time. but. Fair and Square won the, the time trial there in Tour of Romandy, and you know then went on to the Giro and yeah took the white jersey first and then three days in, in the pink jersey. It was just absolutely incredible. I mean, even to this day, it's some of the greatest memories of, of my career. It was three days in the in the pink jersey and you know ended up finishing seventh on, on G C. It was, you know, still something like out of a dream, to be honest.
2: So um It was definitely spectacular because I remember us just switching on the TV every day to watch you and see how it goes for you, you know, or for us, for our team. So you you think it was a pure blessing for you that you had that result so early? Or you sometimes think, ah, maybe I should have been one or two years older because obviously the expectations come with a result like that your own expectations on yourself and also from the outside, that you might be a podium contender for a grand tour. Did you ever felt that pressure already back then or you were too young to stress about it?
0: I think at the time I was, you know, when you were that age, you, you had that mentality like you're ready to fight and I'm going to show these guys, you know, like that's kind of like the Rowan Dennis you know, that's how he motivates himself um, in a time trial is like, I'm going to show these guys, you know, and that's kind of my mentality. But I think you're right. yeah it's like, it was a great result. But then I kind of needed to take two steps back and, you know, serve an apprenticeship, so to speak. You come out and, and you, you take a leader's jersey in your first grand tour. It's almost like it's too easy. But I think when I got to Sky and Bobby was there by that time, but they said, you think you're sort of here, but you do need to take two steps back. Learn from the best, which you know at the time uh, at Sky with guys like Bradley Wiggins, you know, who who won everything that year. It was nice to to just have that opportunity to sort of step back into a helpless role and and learn from some of the best guys in the business.
1: And the year before, you got to ride with Contador, so talking about having some good guys to to ride for, but. You said something a little bit earlier that I think we need to hit on because your boss came and told you at a very young age that, like you said, maybe not the most PC way to say it, you definitely couldn't say it nowadays, you're fat and you're too fat to be a cyclist. And I need to know from what sort of things did you implement into your diet? Because... I've known you a long time, we've worked together. You are definitely one of those riders that fluctuate with weight. Yeah, It's a hot topic nowadays, right? With eating disorders and so much stress on power to weight ratios. But what were your tricks and how did you sustain that race weight? Because like in the off season, everybody gains a little bit of weight, but you always showed up back on weight when you were supposed to be ready to race. What were or what are some of the suggestions that you could maybe say to the young men and women out there that are confronting the same sort of feedback and, and how they can deal with that?
0: Yeah, look, I think I remember when Bianna said that to me in Nice on, on the promenade, you know, after the last stage of Paris. So I came back home to Monaco. I had, uh, you know, a large pizza, tub of Ben and Jerry's, all that. And then I was like, right, tomorrow I start. Get that out of the system. And then I start. It's just one of those things, isn't it? It's like you eat junk food and all that and and sometimes you have to do that. Like it's just it's just one of those things when you go riding with guys, it's just it always turns out to be diet and I heard this team's doing this and that, but at the end of the day it's it's a funny one now because you you sit down in the in the kitchen truck with Ineos and it's like guys dissect their meal. It's like some protein, some carbohydrate and it's just all so it's just so hard, you know, like it's just, you know, instead of just looking at a a plate of food and and as a a plate of food, it's it's fuel now, you know, it's just, but I just find that hard to do the whole season. It's like I can, I can keep it on, you know, for, you know, however long, but the traction control is off with me. It's, it's off, you know, it's like, it's not one ice cream. It's, you know, it's, it's six ice creams. It's just one of those things that, if we have junk food in the house, then I'm, I'm all in, which is a little bit harder now with kids and they have a treat box. And I, I just think that, you know, when when you have to be on it and, and regime, um, when you do get a bit older, it's harder to do that with age. But at that time, you know, when I was so driven to, you know, show what I was made of and Biana gave me that kick up the bum, which I needed. I really changed things, you know, and I had good people like you, Bobby, or Bradley McGee around me to help make those changes. I've been very lucky in my career to always have good people around and and good advice, you know, which has uh, been a blessing.
2: So you already answered my follow-up question. It did not become easier with age, right? The diet and being strict with the food. And it didn't become a natural habit that you maybe after two or three or four years you go, you know what? I like eating healthy. That's what I do these days. No, it, it it's not becoming like that, right?
0: No, not really. It's like, you know, it's it's just one of those things when second week of a grand tour and just like, oh, you know, the things I do for a gelato or something like that. It's just like, I think when you're so strict on yourself, you know, like in, in the Giro, for, for instance, there are some days where you'd have like a Kinder Buono and, and and you felt really bad but then you know when you pull out and in the circumstances like i did you know um gastro two days before the finish uh but then when you get home and, and the amount of, of rubbish you, you eat that's when you realize how well behaved you are when you're on regime you know it's just i'm probably not the only guy you know that we're all um, our cyclists are, you feel like a rebel for eating you know a little bit of junk food don't you it's like well look at me i'm a bad boy i'm eating you know i'm eating a, a mars bar or something like that but i mean sometimes it's just nice to be human isn't it and i know the season's long now and the teams pay us to race before COVID from january to october but i mean it's it's so much harder now you only really have a few weeks to go out and enjoy yourself you know eat some normal food and and drink some beer or or wine and i think that's probably one of the reasons why the younger guys are are so good you know they've been doing these low res or low carb rides from the age of 15 or or whatever and it's you know i don't think it's sustainable but then you look at them and how good they are and maybe it is sustainable
2: so what are you trying to say is Back in the days people would be hey I'd be a rebel, I buy a motorbike, or I get a tattoo. Nowadays is hey, I'm a rebel and I'm gonna walk down the street with an ice cream in my hand. <laughs> like
0: that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly, you know. It's it's like it's like that, that moment when you go to to the airport and then you get on the plane full of cyclists and you have a, a layover somewhere and you know you, you see the sprinters and they're eating you know, eating whatever they want but I was with Caleb Ewan the other day and he was eating sushi but you could feel guys looking at him going wow you know he's, he's eating it's like oh you know such and such eats a lot but it's like yeah but he doesn't go to the food room and eat you know three bowls of cereal you know what you see him eat at the table is what he eats it's just I mean for me that's just one of the hardest things with cycling is that you know it does get toxic that whole and you do have to just go right this is what works for me if I'm going to eat two tubs of Greek yogurt then to dinner, then then so be it. It's it's not that big of a deal, is it, when you're burning 4,000 calories day in, day out. And, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that us cyclists are very, very good at making hard is, uh, is diet.
1: Yeah, I've always said for many, many years right now, let the air out of the balloon little by little instead of that one big pop, because that's where you get in trouble. Thanks for sharing with us the, the trials and tribulations of trying to stay skinny. We wish all the young kids do look at food as food and not necessarily as fuel all the time. But that brings me to a, a question from the beginning of your career to now, the on the bike fueling, do you think you eat less or more at the end of your career than you did at the beginning of your career when you're on the bike?
0: um i mean it's definitely one of those things that's been pushed hard you know is to eat more but i think i've been lucky with the nutritionists that they sort of say well you eat a lot of rice but like rice cakes were the thing weren't they when we 2012 when you know i was really started to take it all very seriously that was what you ate but now it's like it's sort of moving away from that more to gels and i just find it hard when Maybe I am old school here, but I just find it hard when when people start talking about how many grams of carbohydrate and stuff like that they consume in an hour it's like you've lost me you know it's like I'll take you know a, a day for me where you know it's a, a big day then I'll probably you know have three or four gels but no more than that. Like I'd rather just eat normal food like rice or you know like little sandwiches things like that. I just think I operate much better on on that. All these sugary drinks and stuff it's like you know a can of coke is so frowned upon in, in in cycling but then it's like you can't tell me that a gel's more healthy than a can of coke um, you know it's it's just one of those things that i think when when you're in the twilight of your career it's hard to change you know um i guess that there are older guys that have changed that but i'd rather just um you know fuel how I need to you know if I'm thirsty I'll drink water or or you know the hydro tubs that we have but I've definitely changed the way I eat on the bike um and I probably do feel a bit better in races now than I did at the start but yeah it's it's another thing that's so complicated now is you know talking about how many grams of carbs and this and that that you have it's uh, uh it just hurts the head even talking about it
2: um then I just want to hurt you a little more the training, is that is that becoming complicated and a headache as well? Like more intervals, shorter, longer rides than before? Where's the whole training regime heading towards? Short and intense rides or what's the thing uh, you guys do these days to get ready?
0: Yeah, I definitely think short and intense is the thing. Now that's sort of taken over. You'd probably say in the in the last few years, um, since like Paul Charles come onto the scene or, or Roglic, the racing is much more intense it, it used to be that you know you, the last two climbs maybe something would happen but that's not a given now is it it can happen from you know even the neutral zone sometimes it's a fight for position and and it's it's on from kilometer zero but yeah i think the training now is much you know much more intense efforts than than what we used to do but at the end of the day you do just have to ride your bike still it's easy to get lost in, in doing all these big, explosive efforts. But yeah, I mean, you're a bike rider, ride your bike. Um, definitely with my coach, um, Lee Bryan, who, you know, sort of, he's been in the sport for a long time. He's known as, as Rock. I mean, we all, we the all know The Rock is and, your coach? Yeah. yeah Stewie's old coach. friend, The Rock? <laughs> wow, how cool is that? Yep. I never knew. Yeah. Please pass my regards yep. to him. Yeah, so he's... Yeah, I've got The Rock as my coach, but, you know, I've worked with some brilliant coaches like, you know, Tim Kerrison and, and uh, at Trek I had a, a really good guy, La Razavel who who you know, Yenzi, from the So, you know, I've always had great coaches. I think that's part of the thing, isn't it? It's just having a coach that believes in you and backs you and, you know, is happy to adapt to the way that you train too, which, you know, around Monaco, that's all we do really all day is is climb, so... It's quite easy to do, you know, good intense sessions.
2: If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine. Exclusive membership content from www.belonews.com. Access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including yoga journal, backpacker, ski, Outside Magazine and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia GPS and trail forks as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout. You'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great! And now back to our chat with Richie. One thing I need
1: you to confirm right now: Everyone talks of Col de Madon. Rumor has it that you have the best time up Col de Madon. And that you took it away from Chris um, Froome back in, gosh, I don't know what year that was, 2015 or something. Is that in fact the case? Are you still the fastest up Col de Madone? And if so, do you remember your time?
0: I actually did it the same day as, as me back in 2013, it was like the, the first year he won the tour. And I was quicker that day too. I, I don't know how, like, by how much. I think. Maybe it was thirty seconds or whatever. So I think I did twenty-nine forty from the bus stop where where Lance and, and those guys used to do it from. So it's kind of the official spot. But I actually did it faster in twenty sixteen. Uh I did it in twenty nine twenty four from the bus stop to the top. But I didn't go and win the tour that year like like Froumi did. So, you know, as a as a one out effort, it's you yeah, know, it's a kind of a cool one to to have, but um I get some some Strava notifications now saying uh oh Tade has taken your com so he's slowly chipping away at it he was 1 second off the uh, the bus stop up to the saint turn off so I think it's only a matter of time before he comes and smashes that but uh it's it's my favorite climb in the world I absolutely love it and you know it's it's kind of cool to, to have that com on it
1: so on your Strava How many times do you think you've gone up Uh Coldamadong in the 14 some odd years that you've lived down there?
0: I mean, obviously, I I don't think I I came to Strava in maybe around 2017, you know, using it all the time. But I I sort of used it, you know, if I was out for a comm hunt, I'd I'd spark up my Strava. But I mean, it must literally be hundreds of times, close to thousands, even. (laughs) Just for, for me, I, I'd rather punch myself in the face than ride in traffic, you know. I don't like jumping lights and all that or getting in people's way and having to, to deal with that. So I'd rather just ride out in the, the, the back road. So the Madone's the most quiet way home for me. So I just love, you know, banging over the top of that. But I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm a bit disappointed because there's actually going to be uh, works on the Madone so starting yesterday for the next three months, which is basically the last three months of my career, the Madon's apparently closed for work. So I'm pretty disappointed. in. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it's a it's a sign, isn't it? It's time to stop.
2: And it guarantees that you will have your KOM there until the end of your career, because nobody can beat it. Exactly. So that's good. That's a good thing. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, the yeah. bonus and everything. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah. Richie, you had a yeah. long career and a lot of great successes. Could you pinpoint one moment where you go, yeah, I believe I was the strongest in that moment or in that race. It doesn't have to be a win.
0: I think the one for me that probably stands out was the tour in 2020 where it was the stage where I punched it on the, on the gravel road that we did.
2: Oh, yeah, and, man.
0: I was yeah, biting and, and was my nails. Just, it was just one of those days. Like I, I knew I wasn't on a, a great day to start with. And then we did, you know, it was a hard climb and then I got that puncher. Then I was lucky that I was dreading the descent because it's a horrible descent. And then I ended up going down it and I had like Walt Van Aert with me and, 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 and Tom Dumoulin. And, and then they were, you know, they were gentlemen, to be honest. They, they didn't have to pull because they had Roglic in, in front of me, but they gave me a hand, you know, like they let me do the lion's share of the work, but they came through, they gave me a hand. I don't know if I was the strongest guy on that day, but it was just one of those moments where it felt like me to start with against, you know, guys like Enrique Mass and um, Superman Lopez up there chopping off to make sure that I didn't come back. But I managed to get back, you know, with a little bit of help from Dualan and, and Walt Van Aert, which was nice. But that's probably for me the, the day where I thought, yeah, you know, that was, a, that was a pretty awesome ride. I was quite, quite happy with myself after that effort
1: that That was amazing being a fan of yours for so long and you know especially at the BMC years, you didn't have the best of luck crashing it out on on stage nine, <laughs> what two years and then having that that famous crash into the back of the motorcycle when when frumi had to yeah you know hoof it up the the road a little bit. But man, you, you forgot to mention that there was podium spot of the Tour de France on the line. Like if you would not abridge that gap, you would not have been the podium on the podium. yeah. So after all those years and yeah, putting that gravel section up there seemed like, oh, poor poor Richie man. <laughs> the guy deserves to be on the podium of the Tour de France so many years, and it's gonna end like this, but you fighting back, you know, saying that those guys you know, kind of helped you, didn't hinder you, put it that way. I don't think I've ever screamed so loud when you came back to that front group and and solidified yourself for, for podium contention still. But I need to know a little bit more information about that firsthand view, because we basically saw your face crashing into the camera going up Mont Ventoux that year when it was chaos, right? Like No one knew what was going on and then you started going again and you see Froomey like running and you guys have been friends for a long time, teammates for a long time. What, what was going through your head in that scenario or was it just full adrenaline panic, you know, just get going as fast as you can?
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, it was just an incredible day. Like, you know, obviously they shortened the stage and that's why it wasn't buried off, which I mean, hindsight being a fantastic thing, it's unbelievable that they didn't bury that off. I mean, they say they didn't have time, but come on, like they have, you know, it's a pretty big crew that they have working on the biggest bike race in, in the world. But Frumi said to me at the bottom, you know, the forest of, of Mont Ventoux, he said, let's go, you know, let's let's go, let's, you know, we've got the foot on the throat kind of thing. And then it was, you know, Molomer, Frumi, and I, and one minute's just like, this is brilliant because I did that silly puncture at the start and lost two minutes as well. And I was thinking, you know, I'm riding myself onto the, the podium here. It's all going really well. And there's that corner just after the chalet where, you know, all this hoo-ha about Frooby, uh, having, you know, engine or whatever in his bike and anyone that's ridden that in, in a race knows you turn left and then it's just like, it's sort of almost like a bit of a descent for a few seconds and it's fast. And I just remember looking and thinking, well, the crowd's getting, you know, more and more drunk, which it was, you know, it was Bastille Day. It was getting more drunk and they were getting closer to us. And then the next minute, the motorbike was just right there. Didn't even have the chance to, to break. It just, you know, just smashed straight into the back of it. It was just, you know, like, it, it was like being in, in primary school, you know, stacks on. It was like me and Moloma and I just on, on the ground. And I was the first one down, last one up kind of thing. It was. But then it's just like something out of a dream. Like it just was unbelievable that could happen. And then you see Froome you running and it's like just sheer desperation. But I also remember that the, it was like, you know, the, the crowd weren't big Chris Froome fans. And so it was kind of scary as a mate of Chris Froome that, you know, he's there kind of at their mercy a little bit, you know, like, but then as I went past him, he was just, he said to me, ah, oh, this is not right. You know and and then when i looked up from that the big red car that you know the big red car with the commissaire it just jammed its brakes on and i obviously didn't have brakes because my wheels were that buckled that i had to loosen the brakes off so i almost smashed into the back of that and then then when i got to the finishing line it was just like you know kind of sunk in like what just happened i mean it's just so surreal even to this day it's you know quite surreal i remember I used to ride with a little pendant of Tasmania around my neck that you know my mum got from a friend of mine who's a jeweler down in Tassie so it's just the the map of Tassie but that actually jabbed me like stabbed into to my uh, chest so i've still got the scar there from where that you know cut the hell out of me but it was a bit of a shame that the next year you go to the the tour and they do that you know beautiful video montage the year before but they were trying to make a joke of it. Well, they were making a joke of me running up the uh, the Mont Ventoux. It's like, yeah, it might be funny a year on, and yes, he still won the race, but it shouldn't have happened, and, and it, you know, it wasn't something to make a joke out of. Um,
2: actually, uh, once you mentioned uh, Chris and that the crowd was not all of him, they were not his fans. One or two people tried to tell me Froome was running because he was shit scared. He was afraid they'd just punch him uh-huh. down. So he was not just yeah. running to win the race. Some people told me, uh, if you look at the video clip, he's looking back. He's simply afraid he runs until he sees a policeman and stops at the sight of a policeman to feel safer.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like there's been there's been times when with Sky, um, more was on Alpe d'Huez that it, it wasn't safe, you know. Like I remember as a Sky rider being whacked you know like being punched in the ribs and stuff like that it was at that point where you know there's was, there's was ex-riders who actually were dopers that were sort of you know throwing fuel on the fire and and that day on Vaughn too yeah it was it was hostile you know towards Froomey it really was um I get that you know if you if you know you don't always like a sportsman but I never really understood why you boo and jeer or you know or turn up to a race and throw urine or whatever on the riders. I just just never, you know, I I just don't understand that, you know. At the end of the day, Froome is one of the greatest GC riders of of any generation, and, you know, he's a good friend of mine, but I believe in Chris Froome, and I just, it was always disappointing to the amount of criticism that he copped, and a lot of it was very unfair.
1: Well, you have had a long career, and you've announced that you're retiring at the end of this year. I mean, it just seems like yesterday when we met, but now you're a husband, you have two kids, you're a father. um, You're a legend of the sport about ready to tip his hat and ride off into the sunset, quite literally, because you're going down to Tasmania. It's been a wild ride and it's great to see you ending the career on your own terms, but is there anything left on that little bucket list that you'd like to check off, or or are you pretty satisfied with with how things have gone all these years?
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like, of course, people are like, yeah, but you never won a Grand Grand Tour or, or anything like that. It's like, yes, I didn't, but I mean, for me and where it all started to, you know, to win some of the races I've had, it's just been incredible. I mean. And, and to have ridden in some of the teams that i have and you know it's it's it has been you know an, an awesome journey but i'd still like to win a race you know even if it's a stage you know so tour of britain should be my last race and you know it's sort of my wife's english so it'd be nice to go there and and do something you know try and try and win win a race i mean i'm not going to lie um it's a it's a funny thing that you know when i got gastro in the in the giro and um, you know, it was pretty, pretty obvious that I wasn't going to finish the stage. But Roger Hammond said it to me. I said, guys, you know, I'm not going to make it. And, and Roger said, right, just ride for five minutes, take it all in, you know, and, and then when when you're ready to stop, let's stop. And and I cried. I, I did, you know, like I, I burst into tears. It's just like, you know, you think back to, you know, borrowing money off your parents to, you know, fly over to Europe and, and chase that, that dream. And, All the people that have helped you and the time you spend away from your your wife and kids. So, you know, it'd be nice just to to have one last win or, you know, maybe there's a a climb somewhere in Britain that I can just hit them for one last time and and hurt some of these young guys' legs. That's, you know, that's the thing. That's the reason I'm training again now and, you know, I'm, I'm motivated to try and do that.
2: Let me plant a little seed into your brain. You always have been a good time-trailer. The faster you go, the more important is aerodynamics. You got with Filippo Ganna, one of the best TT riders in your team. Why don't you talk to him and you try to do the hour record? I mean, come on, 55, Richie. You're Richie Port, man. You're a legend. You're a winner of Tour de Suisse, winner of Dauphin Libre, twice Peronese. You're a good time-trailer, Richie. If you focus on that... And you create a lot less air resistance than a huge rider like uh, Filippo Ganna. That's your chance. Nobody reckons, but that's your chance, Richie. Once you stop laughing at it, you go, "Ha, that stupid German. Maybe he was right about that."
0: What do you think? <laughs> that silly German. <laughs> that silly German who retired for doing what an Everest an hour record. That one. Yeah, that took one. Yeah, um. that, that was a
2: good way to go, Richie. <laughs> Definitely, it was a good way to go
0: oh look for me I think I remember I remember talking to Bobby and and he said when he retired he didn't have a a competitive bone in his body and and for me that's kind of you know I've always remembered that like Bobby's advice and it's like I really feel that that's how it's going to be you know instead of being the angry pissed off little Tasmanian I think I just want to you know I find myself now like being a fan you know like a fan of the the younger guys and 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 also happy seeing other people do well and you know when you're competitive like we are it's it's nice to be able to be like i'm so happy to see Jai hindley win the Giro. you know it's like yes my teammates Richard carapace and he's a good guy but it's just nice to see your fellow countrymen do well and it's like when you get older it's like you just you know you're not as angry or competitive and yeah i think uh all that or you know even doing a iron man triathlon it just doesn't really excite me. I think I prefer to drop my kids at school or you know read the newspaper and 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 have you know a couple of dogs and walk them. I'm just so looking forward to that normal life after this.
1: Oh man, I'm 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 so happy to hear that because Getting to the end of the career is always is always tricky. There's you're going to be in good company this year. There's quite a few guys that are retiring that were icons of the sport like yourself. But hey, listen, we're we're running a little bit short on time, but I've I had this idea of doing kind of like a hot seat of a couple questions. You've already answered a couple of them, so I'm going to have to take some out. Try to respond as quickly as you can so that we can get through of all these. You don't get to think very much. I want this off the cuff. Okay, so number one, how many yellow jersey winning teams have you been a part of?
0: Four? No, three, three.
1: What's your best memory from your career in cycling? Don't think too hard.
0: P- Paris first time. Oh man, I'm so glad
1: you said that. Okay, we've all had some, but what is your least favorite or toughest memory of your entire career?
0: Pah, broken collarbone, 2018. All right. In the talk.
1: Okay your favorite bit of tech of new tech that has changed during your career
0: the garmin varia <laughs> the tail light i feel oh. i feel naked without it i can't ride without it
1: man again i can't believe you said that because i if you told me a few years ago that i'd be riding around with a blinker oh. on the back of my bike i would have told you you're crazy but now i can't ride Game without changer. it and i'm totally stoked that they came out with that new one that has yeah. the camera as well as the radar. Like, I, I, that's that's on my Father's Day wish list, which is coming up here. So if my daughters, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> hint, hint. Okay, favorite off-season food? Oh. Uh,
0: I'd say ice cream.
1: Let's end on, take as long as you want with this one. What advice would you give to the new generation of GC riders? From down under, like Jay Healy, Ben O'Connor, just to name a few, based off of your incredible career.
0: Uh, I don't think I need to give those guys any career, but, you know, spending a bit of time with those young guys uh, back in Oz, like I did this year, raced the tour down under with the national team, but it's like, just don't make it too complicated, because it ain't, you know, it's like, ride your bike, eat well, you know, have some time off to enjoy it, but once it becomes your job, then take it seriously.
2: Fantastic. Richie, I got a bit of memory I want to share with you. Hopefully you remember that as well. Your first Peronese, not the one you won, but uh, one Peronese. First stage, you were a Neo Pro and you worked. I had, a, I had an okay TT to start off with. You helped me all day long. I managed to make the front group. In the breakaway, in the final, I ended up taking the jersey. And about one, two, Wait three again. minutes later, <laughs> you rode in because you gave all you had for me. You stopped in front of the podium, watched me get that yellow jersey and stopped to salute me. <laughs> two years, one or two years later, we have the same situation, just opposite positions. I crossed the line when you already get the yellow jersey and I stopped in the podium to go, Hey, Richie, there we go. Life is a circle. <laughs> I always tell that story when we talk about you. I love that story. How That's how nature is made it, right? There's always somebody younger and stronger coming up, and it was you from helping me to take that jersey. One or two years later, you were there to take their jersey, and I was in the exact position you were before.
0: I, and for me, my favorite Yenzi moment was Eniko Tour, like my first year Neo Pro that's probably my proudest result nearly as a, as a professional I was fourth in the end <laughs> tour. And I just remember Jens was on the front, just shredding it. You know, there guys with lead out trains coming up beside peeling guys off. And Jens, was, you know, for me, it was, you know, a pinch, your, pinch yourself moment because Jens Voigt, this guy that I'd watched, you know, the hardest man in the Peloton um, was, was pulling for me. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? How, how life changes, you know, it's like, it's funny when you do turn professional and you have, you know, guys like Contador and the Schlecks and Fabian and, and then when you meet them, just normal guys, you know, it's just, you know, I think that's a good thing with cycling is they're just such normal, humble, down-to-earth guys. I think that's why people love cycling is it's, a, you know, it's sort of seen here as a bit of a, a farmer's sport, like, or you know, like a, a common man's sport and, and that's why, you know, that's why we have some of the best fans.
1: Well, I got to jump in here because I, I want the world to know this story. And every cyclist in the pro peloton, they, they need to hear this story. You were in the yellow jersey of Tour of Valgarve in 2012. I come walking up into the little area with a home trainer in my hand. And I said, okay, Tim Kerrison has texted me and he wants you to do the warm down protocol right now. And so you, you do what I say, you know, we put your bike on, you start spinning. And one of our best mates, Stuart O'Grady, who was riding for, I think, Cofidis at that time r- rides by and just rolled his eyes. And he looked at me and he said, would you have done this when you were still racing? Because I, obviously I'd moved over to the coaching side of things. And I said, actually, yes. But that day was the first time that anyone ever did that. And now you see people not only warming down at the buses, but warming down like you did at the podium ceremony. Dang, we got we got people warming up for races on, on home trainers. But the professional peloton, as we know it, can thank Tim Carrison myself, and Richie Port for starting that entire trend.
0: Yeah, I remember that too, Bobby, because I remember Stewie saying, oh, you know, Bobby, oh, he wouldn't have done it and this and that. But then... I remember the next year at the tour, 2013, when he was with Mitchelton or Green Edge, whatever they were called at the time, I remember riding past them and Stewie was on the home trainer warming up for a stage and he just looked at me with that funny, you know, that Stewie look and, you know, big grin, you know, and, and times change, I mean. It, it is funny what, it's every other sport does a cool down except for cycling but yeah as you say now everybody's doing
2: it Richie trendsetters it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast and to finally catch up with you it was so great to talk to you and um, yeah I guess um, Bobby and me we are also a little proud that we were part of your career that we crossed paths, or we actually walked the paths alongside for for a few years um, Richie Thanks a million for being our guest tonight.
0: Thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to hosting you down in Tassie one day. It'd be great.
2: Um, Talking Tassie, what are the plans if you want to share with us? Are you going to live, stay in Europe? Or you want to move back to Australia? You want to move back to Tassie? Or what's the plans with kids and school, a British yeah, wife?
0: So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. My wife's British, but she's uh, probably more, more keen to go back to to tassie um than what i am so yeah it's definitely part of our our future is to to go back there to the other end of the of the world and hopefully come off all social media and just have a, a very normal life i can't wait
1: <laughs> well we're happy for you thanks again for your time richie thanks for having me boys. enjoy retirement my friend sure will well that's all the time we have for this week huge thank you to richie port for being our guest
2: Thanks for listening, and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends.
1: And if you enjoyed this chat with Richie, why not check out our chats with fellow Aussies Cadell Evans, Rowan Dennis, and Anna Mears. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza.
2: And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and please share your cycling stories with us.